Hi folks, a shout out this week to Sharon Pask, who did a review of the Take On Board podcast. Thanks, Sharon. She says, gender pay gap episode, very informative session with Emma Ray. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sharon, for taking the time to do a review. We love to get reviews here. And thanks to Emma for doing that episode. Second announcement for this week. This week we're hearing from Kari Hatch. And listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Take On Board podcast, where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Halia Svensson. Being on a board can be interesting, valuable and exciting, yet it can also be really lonely, challenging and hard. So here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. We'll also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking with Caitlin Siostrom about risk oversight on not-for-profit or small organisational boards and how to create meaningful risk appetite statements and policies that are fit for purpose no matter what your resources. First, let me tell you about Caitlin. Caitlin is on the board of Times Change Women's Employment Service and the chair of their risk committee. Times Change is a women's run not-for-profit providing employment opportunities for women in need. Caitlin is also a senior regulatory lawyer who recently led ASIC's Corporate Governance Task Force Workstream, looking at board oversight of risk in Australia's largest financial institutions. Caitlin recently moved to Canada and is currently a senior director at Royal Bank of Canada, where she leads the bank's regulatory compliance management program. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Caitlin. Thanks for having me. It is so awesome to have you. And... Oh, look, as always, before we dig into this topic about risk and risk appetite and all of those things, I would love to dig a little bit deeper about you. So tell me, what was young Caitlin like and when did you get your first inkling that you might end up working in this world of risk and boards and so on? Yeah, so I think young Caitlin has, you know, always had itchy feet. I think I I grew up uh, moving around a lot throughout Australia and as I, you know, finished school and university, I travelled overseas a lot. I spent some time in the UK, back in Australia, and, and presently, as you said, where my partner and I are living in Toronto in Canada. My career has always been quite important to me, but equally so is, you know, it's important to me to be able to, to have that travel and to be able to move around and have those different experiences. And I think that thread sort of follows through my career as well. So I, I went to law school in Brisbane. I went through uh, the Australian Securities and Investments Commission's graduate program when I first graduated, you know, not really sure what I wanted to do, but just knowing I wanted to have, you know, a broad range of experiences. 
And so through that, I, I sat in litigation seats, I worked in the wealth management space and, and then spent a lot of time in the uh, capital markets space in M&A, uh, listings issues on the ASX and so on. Again, my itchy feet took me across to, to the UK for a few years where I just had an incredible time traveling around Europe on the weekends and over there, I, I stayed with that regulatory uh, theme and I worked for the Financial Conduct Authority for a few years. And during that time, uh, depending on how you look at it, fortunately or unfortunately, there was some really big market events. And so I was there over the Brexit vote and also over the Trump presidency. And so both of those were quite big market movers. And so I had experience over there working with uh, markets crisis teams and looking at you know, from a regulatory perspective, how do we help stabilise markets? How do we respond to events which were not expected in the markets? I think especially coming out of that Brexit piece, I, the work that I was doing at the FCA really pivoted. And whilst I was really working in that capital markets space and looking at uh, market abuse, short selling issues with the London Stock Exchange, I also then switched around to look at, well, working with her Majesty's Treasury and helping to onshore, you know, the British domestic legislation uh, as they were preparing to leave from the European Union. So really unique experience in, in the, during my time there, uh, which was incredible. And again, just something that uh, happened because of my desire to move around. Uh, after that, I, I came back to Australia for a little while and for my career, it was, it was quite well-timed. I came back as the Royal Commission into Misconduct in Financial Services was really kicking off. And I think, again, that helped me pivot more into the corporate governance space. I think I'd always been quite interested in, you know, what underlies some of these market events. And, and corporate governance is this very common thread running through everything. Mm -hmm. And because of the, the results coming out of the Royal Commission, uh, and my work back at ASIC, I was involved in a new initiative, the Corporate Governance Task Force, which the, the work stream that I was leading was going into Australia's biggest banks and financial services organisations and, and looking at from the board level down, how are these boards of really large and complex organisations managing non-financial risks? And it was a really fascinating process to go through, I think, you know, four larger organisations, the GFC was that really big wake-up call for financial risk, but non-financial risk, you know, I think especially in Australia, hadn't necessarily had that big wake-up call uh, prior to the Royal Commission. I think, you know, in other parts of the world, there had been those large corporate scandals and corporate collapses, which had a non-financial risk element to them. But in Australia, there had been a, a little bit of protection ar around that uh, until, you know, 2018. And so doing my work in that space obviously really opened my eyes to how boards do, you know, oversee risk, oversee non-financial risk in particular. How do you quantify? How do you track? How do you monitor what those key risks are when you're in an environment where there's so many risks at play? Your organisations can be so big uh, and, and that presents a unique set of, uh, set of challenges there. So that was a really interesting piece of work. And I think through that, that really helped instill in me how interested I was in, in, in moving onto boards and sort of using my experience in a different light. Through that piece of work, I also uh, was fortunate enough to go through the AICD course to really understand from a director's perspective, you know, how they see their role in, in terms of risk oversight. So adding to 
you know, I guess from a regulatory perspective, you look at the legal landscape and say, well, what are you responsible or, or accountable for as a director? Really being able to understand from a director's perspective, what are you focused on? What are the things that keep you up at night? I think was was a really interesting overlay to that. So I had those experiences, which really inspired me in terms of the next steps for my career. And then that was you know, all largely put on hold when my partner and I decided to move to Canada uh, at the beginning of a pandemic. So that was uh, not the best time. You know, we left Australia at uh, end of 2019, unbeknownst to us with the pandemic brewing, and we went backpacking for a few months. And by the time we arrived into Canada, 48 hours later, the world had shut down. Not ideal, but, uh, you know, it was a good opportunity to sit there and rethink, you know, what did I want to be doing with my career? And so, I spent a bit of time at a consulting firm, just sort of getting a bit of the lay of the land uh, in Canada and then made a move to Royal Bank of Canada, where, as you said, I I run their regulatory compliance management program for the enterprise. So looking at putting in place, uh, you know, global frameworks, methodologies and structures to help the bank, which is a, a globally systemically important bank and has operations in a huge number of countries, you know, helping make sure their compliance risk management is really robust. And in addition to that, uh, as you said, I joined the board of Times Change, which is you know, my first board appointment, and it's been an incredible experience so far. You know, I'm moving into my second year now. The organisation itself, it's women's-led. It's, a, it's got its roots in the 1970s feminist movement uh, in the sense that it's, you know, it's very flat, collective. Every member of their organisation that's a member of the collective uh, is a member of the management team. So I think, you know, as a board member, that presents a really interesting structure. You don't, you have a, a rotating board liaison. You don't necessarily have a, a CEO or an MD that uh, is your liaison. So that's been, a, that's been a really interesting experience. And, you know, it's an incredible organisation. And these women do so much, uh, you know, with obviously tight resources, as, as any not-for-profit has. In my first year there, I started leading their, their risk committee and, and started having a look at, you know, what could we... What could we bring to the table here? You know, they they had a risk report, which was in really great shape. And I guess for me, having had those experiences, you know, with ASIC and with the FCA and coming out of the Royal Commission, I really wanted to think about, well, what can we do here to really bring this to life? Sort of practice what you preach as a regulator by saying, you know, you really need to be engaging with this. This needs to be living, breathing part of uh, your role as boards and, and as an organisation. And so, yeah, I had some really great experiences there. Oh my goodness. There is so much in there already. I've been taking notes on questions I want to ask you and they are all over the shop uh, in things. But people that are listening, you can see why we've got Caitlin here to talk about this stuff because there is such a wealth of experience. I was going to make a, oh look, I will make this quick comment, I guess, around, you know, somebody who has travelled as a bit of a thread through there and dealing with unexpected events the last 12 to 18 months have been an amazing kind of uh, experience in that way, I guess, although it has prevented the travel. But it's been, you know, interesting knowing that that's your kind of common thread in a way. And this is more of a personal thing, but how are you feeling then about the pandemic? Because that is one of the things that drives you and you haven't been able to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's uh, it's the worst hobby to have for a pandemic. I think it is loving travel. Uh, it's been a really interesting experience. One of the big draw cards of moving to Canada, so, so my partner's Canadian, and I should say is, is the person that introduced me to Helia, so uh, I'll have to buy him a nice bottle of wine. 
<laughs> shout out to Karen Clark for starting it and shout out to Jeff. Hi. <laughs> yeah, so um, so, so similar to me, you know, he, he also absolutely loves to travel and, you know, one of the, the big things we want to do when we got to Canada was, you know, we'll travel through the US, we'll do Central America a bit more, we'll do the Caribbean and, and arriving here and having all of that largely taken away mm-hmm. was, uh, it was definitely interesting and it's, uh, it's uncomfortable. It's not where I, not where I want to be in terms of, you know, how I spend my downtime, but it's, it's also sort of caused us to stop and, and think about, you know, what else can we be doing? I think we've done a lot more sort of domestic travel in and around the lockdowns as we've been able to. Mm. Um, and, and I think for everyone that's been through those sort of prolonged periods of lockdown, I think it really centers what's important to you in terms of, you know, those personal connections, friends, family, and yeah. things like that. And, you know, how, uh, how fleeting everything else is. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. And again, we will come to risk because you are a, a wealth of knowledge there, but just before we get there as well, cause you mentioned joining your first board. How did that actually happen? Just talk us through how what the process was and how you ended up there in the boardroom. Before I left Australia, having having completed the AICD course, I had started thinking about board opportunities uh, back home in Melbourne. And then obviously the timing around us moving, it became quite clear that, you know, I, I wasn't going to be able to commit to a, to a board, you know, in, in that last 12 months or so before I left. And so I held off, but it was was one of the things that was really high up on my list for when we first settled in Toronto to actually start looking Mm. around and seeing what was out there and so I I signed up to a few newsletters I I knew I wanted to be in the NFP space um, and particularly was really interested in women's issues and so just signed up to whatever sort of newsletters and feeds I could find Uh, there's a really fantastic website here called Volunteer Toronto and they sort of uh place all the opportunities together and give you a weekly feed and there's sort of similar feeds in Australia as well and, and I think through that I saw the call out for board members for times change and so I connected with them and, and had a really good first chat with uh, one of their board liaisons at the time and she really explained to me you know what their ethos is what their mission is and what they're looking for which I think is the first most important thing for me is to make sure that that really aligns you know I think it, it, it can't just be about getting it on your CV that you're, you're sitting mm. on a board, I think that's uh, that's a really narrow way to look at it and it doesn't help anybody long term. So I think for me it's really important to, you know, to make sure we were aligned on what it is they were looking to achieve and what they wanted from a board member and is that something I could offer. I think we had a, a few discussions about what are the skills they were looking for. And so I'm, I'm an Australian qualified lawyer. I'm not yet qualified in Canada, but that was one of the skills they were looking for. And so uh, that was just a really good fit. And I, so I had a, a formal interview with a few board members and then sat in on a board meeting to observe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, it was, was offered a, a, a role for two years, and which I accepted. And it's uh, still been downhill from there. Fantastic. And I actually love hearing in there that you got to observe a board meeting prior to your appointment as well. It's such a great thing for boards to do. It doesn't happen very often. Sometimes there's practical reasons that get in the way of that, but I think it's a really great thing for people to be able to do. It gives you that idea of, you know, who are the other people on the board? How do they interact with each other? Is it the environment you want to be in? Because I think especially as a volunteer board member, you're choosing to use your downtime to do this and your Sunday afternoons to read board packs. Like, are you actually going to be engaged? Mm. It It was a really good opportunity to be able to do that first before committing. Okay. But I, I, I need to turn to the topic, otherwise we are going to fill all the time. So 
We're talking all things risk today and you've already talked about a whole bunch of risk things in your introduction and your experience in risk and indeed some of the risk kind of challenges and opportunities. Let's just start at the start. What are some of the risk essentials that boards need to know? Yeah, so I think it's uh, it's a really good question and I think it should be very simple to answer. But I think there's so many different ways to approach that. I think, you know, for me, one of the, the really important messages around risk for boards is that, you know, it's not something that you should be looking at as a, a bad thing you need to monitor. You know, I think there's huge opportunities when risk oversight and risk management is done well, huge opportunities to get your organisation performing at its best, you know, avoiding being complacent when it comes to your strategy and the types of things that you're taking on as an organisation. So I think for me, number one is reframing the way you look at risk to see the opportunities in there. And I think closely following on from that is, you know, making sure you've got a risk oversight process in place for your organisation that's meaningful, that's engaging, that you understand as a board member. Because I think until you have that, you can't have the other step, which is looking at the opportunities that good risk oversight and risk management create. You know, you've just talked to us about how you joined your first board and you're the um, chair of the risk committee. Can you talk us through how that happened in practice for you at that organisation, for you coming in, for you to get that understanding of the risk oversight and also to lead the board through that? Tell us the story. I was very eager to have a a really active role in risk oversight at at the board that I joined because of my experience. I thought I could bring a lot to the organisation in that sense. And so I think it timed quite quite fortunately for me in the sense that, you know, after a few months of being on the board, they were looking at their committees and looking to sort of refresh and revamp the committees that they had, looking for gaps in committee oversight, looking for, you know, where committees needed to be restructured. And so it just sort of very naturally presented an opportunity for me to put my hand up and say, hey, I'm, I'm actually really interested in risk. The other committee I sit on is the operational committee because there's some really quite close ties into the risk committee. Uh, especially when we start to talk about the metrics and and so on, which we'll get to. So I think it's, you know, for me, a natural opportunity presented itself, but I also think had that not happened, you know, I think it's about being really vocal and and offering, you know, what you're interested in and what you think you can bring to the board because I think, you know, as as a chair of the board, I think that's exactly what they want to know and want to hear and even if there's not that opportunity, at least they have in the back of their mind that we've got somebody here who's willing and able. So I think you led them through a process around their risk appetite statement, which is one of the key elements, I guess, of a risk framework is what's the risk appetite statement. Can you talk us through what you did there and how that happened? And particularly for an organisation that, as you've said before, doesn't have much by way of resources. Talk us through the practical steps that you took people through there as well. Yeah, absolutely. They were already starting from quite a strong point in the sense that they had had previously some consultants in to help them develop a risk report, which I think is, is fantastic, you know, for, for an organisation of their size to have had those resources in previously. And so they had a really strong foundation already by having a report that articulated what their key risks were. And so I really wanted to just build upon that, make this a living, breathing document, make it something that was meaningful to the organisation. I think it's it's very easy to, you know, I hate this expression, but to have this as a tick box exercise risk report is something on your board calendar you need to tick off and say we've signed that off we're happy with it and then it goes in the drawer for 12 months that you're really not getting much out of it you're really I think that's the circumstance in which you're adding resources for very little return the focus with it was really to take it to that next iteration 
to make it really meaningful for the board in terms of us having comfort over over the risk oversight and also for the organisation to see how it can help them. And so we, there was really four steps that we focused on and which I would, I would recommend to anyone who's sort of going through this process with their own board. The four steps are, uh, you know, identifying the key risks, articulating what that, what that means to your organisation, articulating the appetite for those key risks, and then developing some metrics. I'll go through each of those in just a little bit more detail. Um, you know, I think that first step of identifying key risks, I think, you know, you really want to be making sure you're getting a, a good mix, not too many. Obviously, you know, when you get to that sort of 20, 30, 40 key risks, you're not really monitoring any of them. Low single digits to low double digits is sort of where you'd, where you'd most commonly see people, the number of risks they're identifying. You obviously need them to be split across financial and non-financial and they really need to be relevant to your specific organisation, you know, to the way that you're funded, to the activities you undertake and to the exposures that you have. One thing I think is a really useful resource, if you are starting from scratch and you're not really sure what you should be putting down as your key risks, I think, you know, there's, there's some really fantastic documents out there through a quick Google that you can find, you know, any listed organisation that might be operating within your industry or your field, you know, their prospectuses will always have their key risks identified. And not to say that that will be a read across to yours, but it will help to start you, to start the conversation and to start you thinking about what your key risks might be. Oh my God, I had never thought of that. That is such a great, I'd, I'd never contemplated looking at that for listed companies. So there's, there's an awesome tip right there. Sorry, go on. <laughs> Regulator at heart. And then I think that the, the last point on, on identifying those key risks is thinking about year on year, the changes there. I think, you know, majority of your key risks are probably remaining quite static. But I think, you know, they, some of those, uh, those risks around the edges will change year on year. If you're looking at things, you know, some of those emerging risk areas, if you're changing, you know, your, the operations that you've got on, if you're moving into different industries, different spheres and so on. I think it's just, just being mindful of that. So once you've identified those key risks, I think the next step in making this report really meaningful is articulating what those risks mean. This is, you know, that, that first step in maturity of your risk report or your risk appetite statement, because I think it's easy to say, you know, there's a risk here in relation to board effectiveness or key person risk. But what does that mean for your organisation? This is where it really drives home. It becomes real. You know, if you're saying you've got a key person risk, that in and of itself is not that meaningful. But if you say, what does that mean for me? That means we've got a key person risk in this area. If that person leaves, we cannot service this technology or we cannot deliver this product. Yeah. I think all of a sudden that takes on the strength that it needs to take on to, to be something that you want to be monitoring. So articulating that risk, um, I think it, as I said, it brings it to life. It really embeds it into why that's important. The third step is then articulating your appetite for that risk. And these sort of flow one after another, you know, especially once we get to metrics, each step in the process leads you to the, to the next step and they become, you know, quite small stepping stones. But once you look back over the whole thing, you have quite a good roadmap. And so articulating your appetite for risk, I think the key here is to, you to use really plain language and to really think about, you know, what is our appetite for this risk? You know, I think it's quite uncommon to have no appetite for you know a lot of your key risks because I think if you genuinely didn't have a, an appetite for those risks you wouldn't be doing business yeah. they're there they're on your risk report your risk appetite statement because they exist and that's the realities of, of running your organization and so the more articulate you can be about what you're comfortable with 
in mm. terms of your exposure to that risk, the more meaningful this statement will be. And so I think, you know, you can use a high, medium, low scale, or I think another times we've seen it done really well is where the words are quite expressive. And so you might say that, you know, in terms of data breaches or data integrity, you might say we've got no appetite for, for data breaches, but is it that you've got no appetite for deliberate actions that result in data breaches or systemic breaches which result mm. in data loss, things like that. So really thinking about what actually is it that you're concerned about and yeah. trying to articulate that. I think the better that you can do that, the more you can then develop some metrics, which is the fourth step. And, you know, I think the, the current COVID environment has been a really interesting example about articulating risk appetite when it comes to, you know, I think boards might think, well, we would, would we really ever have a high risk appetite for certain key risks? And I think the pandemic has shown things like work from home, remote working, things like that have really come onto boards' radars as, you know, how do we feel about this? And I think for some boards, you actually do have quite a high appetite for the risks that increase because of a remote working environment. Again, this is another one of those examples of where having a risk appetite can help you understand, you know, where you're maybe not living up to, you're not expanding as much as you might need to or might want to, to attract key talent or to take those risks you need to expand as an organisation. So being able to look at a piece of paper and say, okay, we're actually really quite comfortable with risks in these certain areas is another real benefit there. And so that, that final step, as I said, is developing metrics, which really help you monitor your risk exposure. So, these metrics are developed to track your appetite for, for those particular risks. And I think the key points here, I think it's often you hear, you know, we need to create metrics and we need to track and that's quite resource intensive. I think it's the first thing that comes to mind. And for not-for-profits, my starting point is that generally your, your funders, depending on how you're funded, they will require certain reporting and certain metrics from you. So I think as a starting point, it's about looking at what you've got. You're not trying to reinvent the wheel. You're not trying to, you know, create work in, a, in you know, quite uh, lean organisations that, you know, don't have large risk departments sitting there with data analysts just waiting to, to present some graphs for you. I think it's about looking at what you've already got. And most of the time, I think 90% of the time, they'll already be available for you in the organisation. You know, where they're not already available the types of metrics we're talking about are really simple to collect and easy to monitor. You know, for example, if you think about a risk in relation to board effectiveness, you know, I think where you've got for a not-for-profit, you've often got volunteer boards, you might have higher board turnover. So here, when you, if you're working through these steps, you might say that is a key risk for our organisation. What does it mean? It means that, you know, there's a risk that because of high turnover, or low corporate knowledge, our board might not be as effective in coming to decisions that we're comfortable with as an organisation or coming to decisions that take into account X, Y, Z. So, you know, how do you articulate your appetite for that? You might say, okay, we understand we've got a volunteer board. We're happy with that current structure. So, you know, we've got a low to medium appetite for board ineffectiveness in certain circumstances. Yeah. And so you then articulate those circumstances through your metrics by saying, okay, well, what are we comfortable with? You know, if a decision can't be made at a board meeting, that's fine. If a decision goes to two or three board meetings in a row and still can't be made, then we become uncomfortable and that's our metric. So say after two board meetings, if the decision keeps getting turned around and can't be decided, that's our metric. So they can be quite simple in that sense, but meaningful. You know, when you look at board effectiveness and board turnover, you can think about, 
metrics like, okay, if there's two board members leave before the end of their term, that's a flag for us. And that's our metric. And so you build these into existing processes in the sense that you've probably got a board liaison uh, or somebody who's responsible for onboarding new board members who already know those numbers. Mm. And if you say to them, okay, once you've done that more than twice in a two-year period, you flag that to us. And it's those sort of simple things that you can put in place which then mean that, you know, you understand what your appetite is for these risks, but you also know when you're sort of approaching danger territory there. And then you've quite, it's quite simple to have in place these processes which are based on these metrics I think it's a case of sort of that negative reporting and I think the board can take a lot of comfort in having a structure in place like that, especially where you're working with lean resources to say, okay, we know that the executive or the management team will come to us if this occurs or if this happens. And so as a board member, I can take a lot of comfort that I don't need to see reports every month that says X, Y, Z and confirms that everything's okay. I just know that they will come to me where Mm -hmm. things are approaching what I'm comfortable with. Yeah. But I think, I, you know, articulating your appetite in that way and, and having these sort of things written down, I think they're not too resource intensive, but they can actually be really meaningful for the board to get comfort and for the organisation as well to really have their finger on the pulse with some of these issues. Again, wondering with your organisation, did you run a board workshop to go through those four steps with them? Did it all happen in one go or did you do one step and then the next time came for the next step? How did that happen in very practical terms? And what sort of information did your board need to be able to have that conversation in a kind of informed way? In terms of the practical steps, so we really led it through the committee. Our risk committee is a combination of board members and management team or collective members. It was a good small group environment where we went through essentially line by line. You know, we confirmed those key risks and then we went through each of those three steps for each of them. And I think we, you know, that does take some time. We did that over the course of, I think, two or three, you know, separate workshops. And then we presented that as a package to the board and, and talked through that. I think it worked really well because we weren't starting from, a, you know, a blank piece of paper. I think it's much easier to poke holes in things and decide what you don't like and what's missing. You know, the board was able to, to look at this, to obviously read it beforehand and then raise issues and, and ask questions and say, well, how are we monitoring this? And where does that fit into the operations and is everyone comfortable that and and I think that that happened quite smoothly because of the work the committee had put in at the the back end. Yeah I think it's always interesting risk and risk frameworks and risk appetite statement it often sounds so not mysterious might not be quite the right word but it sounds quite technical often to people but when you get into it it's not that technical at all if you know the organisation, you will know what the risks are. You might not call them risks, you might call them challenges or things that are on the horizon or whatever it may be, but it's it, people do know this stuff once you get in and engage with it, I think. I, I think that's spot on and I think the more you can put it into plain language and the more you can put it into the language that you understand and that you engage with, the better it is. You know, yeah. the, the more you can move away from the technical side of things. As you said, it's very intuitive you know, it's that gut feel and it's being able to sort of put that down on paper, um, which is, which is you know, a really interesting process. I think it's not inherently technical and it's not inherently a, a skill set that people don't possess already. Oh, there are so many other things I could delve into. Uh, but as always, the time's gone ridiculously quickly. What are the key things you want people to take away from the conversation that we've had today? So, so I think the key things 
you know, that I think are really important as a board member is that you need to be comfortable with the level of, of risk management in your organisation. You need to be comfortable mm. with the oversight you're getting of risk. And so I think you need to speak up if you're not getting that. I think that's number one. I think number two is, you know, as I said, you look at these risk reports, these risk appetite statements as an opportunity to mm. see where your, you know, where your organisation is doing the best it can. You know, one of the really key examples here is when we look at, you know, metrics, we think, okay, we're okay until we hit a certain threshold. But really, there's there's probably a bottom to that threshold as well. When you're looking at things like staff turnover, mm. uh, for example, you don't want high staff turnover, but you also don't want to have no staff turnover when you're yes. thinking about complacency and, you know, bringing new blood into the organisation. So the more you can look at these processes and, and these risk appetite statements as an opportunity to make sure you are where you want to be mm. as an organisation, it's as much that as it is about managing, you know, the negative things that might happen. Yeah. Uh, and then I think the third thing is just, you know, meet your organisation where they are. You don't have to turn around and, and put this fantastic, you know, technical risk report together in year one. If your organisation is starting from a point that's, a, you know, a, a bit more green, just identifying those risks and articulating what they mean to you will take you a really long way in year one. And then it's something you can build on year on year, especially if you're in an organisation that's quite resource constrained. It can be a one hour workshop with your board and some of your key risk uh, people in the organisation to get those thoughts down on paper, to talk them through. And even that will take you a really long way. Oh, um, is there a resource you would like to share with the Take On Board community? Resource. I, you know, I'm a huge nerd. Uh, I'm a huge fan of reading about risk and listening to podcasts about risk and so on. And, and actually a, a book that I read recently, which I thought was just really interesting take on risk, uh, was by Michael Lewis. And so he's, you know, he wrote about the GFC, he wrote the big short, Flash Boys and so on. And, and he put out a book, I think it was last year, called The Fifth Risk. And it was, it's all about the transition processes. It's based in the US and it's about large government organisations how they were transitioning from the Obama administration to the Trump administration and then mm -hmm. from Trump uh, through to Biden and, and, you know, how is the government looking at risk and some of these key risks for a country, some of these geopolitical risks, risks you'd never really think of around, you know, energy grids and things like that. Yeah. So I think for me it was just quite eye-opening to look at risk from that different perspective. Uh, and then the second book, which I'm a huge fan of, is, is Malcolm Sparrow. He's written a book called Regulatory Craft. And that is, you know, as it, obviously with my regulatory background, I really engage with that. But it's a really interesting book about self-regulation. And I think it's quite topical at the moment when we're looking at regulation, you know, corporate regulation, we're looking at policing and so on. And that puts a really interesting lens on, well, what is regulation aimed at? You know, how can you engage with what it's designed to achieve? How can you self-regulate to get different results? So for me, they're two of, my, uh, two of the books that are, have been on my reading list recently and that I've really enjoyed. Fantastic. Thank you. We'll make sure we put links to both of those in the show notes. Oh, Caitlin, thank you. It's been such a joy to have this conversation and thank you for sharing some of your considerable wisdom around risk uh, with the Take On Board community today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Hi there, it's Halia. That's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together so it's great to be able to share these conversations that I'm having with these amazing group of women with you. Now, can I ask a favour? Could you share this podcast with someone you know? Perhaps you can share it with some of your board colleagues 
or someone else that you know that's interested in exploring all things boards and governance. With your help, we can grow the Take On Board community. Last but not least, if you want to continue the conversation, you can also join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group, where there's lots of great discussions, tips, tricks and resources being shared. I would love it if you can join in the conversation there. You can find it by searching Take On Board in Facebook. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation. Thank you.